Hello! Welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club podcast. On episode number four, I interview Shala Nicely, therapist and author of Is Fred in the Refrigerator, a memoir about OCD. Check the show notes to links to all the cool things we mentioned. Thanks for listening and enjoy. On this episode of the Anxiety Book Club, we are going to be talking about this tremendous book on OCD called Is Fred in the Refrigerator? And joining me today is the author of that book, Shala Nicely. Shala is an author, blogger, cognitive behavioral therapist, um, and survivor advocate for OCD. She lives in Atlanta. She wrote this book and also Everyday Mindfulness for OCD with co-author John Hirschfield. And I think from your email signature, you're maybe even writing a novel. I am. And I'm, I'm happy to be here. So thanks for having me, Josh. Yeah, thank you so much. As I was telling you just a little bit before we started recording, this book was really impactful for me because it represented my opening up to reading texts on OCD, which always scared me. And I identified with it a lot. And it, it let me know about the OCDF, um, OCD Foundation Conference, which took place this past summer in Austin, which I was able to attend and, and meet nice people and, and meet you. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to do that because that conference can be so life-changing for so many people. It was a really good experience. And I know you spoke at it as a keynote speaker at some point. Is that I correct? I did almost seven years ago. Wow. I think we also had the same, if I'm reading your book, I had this giant aha moment. I think both of our first OCD books was Kissing Doorknobs. Is that, ah, is, is that correct for you? Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's a great book as well. It was very eye-opening when I read it for the first time. Yeah, so I have a bunch of questions about Fred, about anxiety, about making a difference in like the anxiety community, and then maybe some personal questions if we have time. Uh, I guess I'll just jump right in. Sounds good. Okay, so for readers who haven't read it, but might be interested in reading it now, do you want to explain the sort of catchy title, Is Fred in the Refrigerator? Sure. So the title is Fred in the Refrigerator, Taming OCD and Reclaiming My Life is actually based on one of the main stories in the book, because I used to obsess that my cat Fred was stuck in the refrigerator. And that obsession and compulsion duo really helped me understand the ridiculous nature of my OCD while also how serious it was. I would know that Fred wasn't in the refrigerator and yet I was unable to walk away from standing in front of it and opening and closing the refrigerator door. So I thought that that title would be really good for the book. One, because I think it's sort of catchy. People are like, what? Is who in the refrigerator? And also too, because it just, for me really symbolizes, you know, what OCD can do to us in terms of taking people who are reasonably intelligent and we get stuck doing these things that we know in the back of our minds don't make any sense and yet we cannot stop. And, you know, that's how OCD is so debilitating for people is that we just can't walk away until we've had treatment. Yeah, definitely. So, so with something like that, it's catchy because, and once people hear the story, they're like, Oh, like a cat in the refrigerator. Okay. Like, you know, I worry about like maybe spoiled milk or maybe mold, but I've never really worried about a cat being there. 
how do you explain to like the complete lay person how, as you said, reasonably intelligent people become afraid of things that are irrational? Well, I think that if you were going to explain explain something like that to somebody who had no idea what OCD was, you could explain that those of us with OCD, when we get intrusive thoughts, we have this thing that reacts to the intrusive thoughts, and that's the OCD. So everybody has these weirdo intrusive thoughts, like is your cat in the refrigerator, or oh gosh, I'm driving over a bridge, I could just turn my wheel and you know go off the side. I mean, all sorts of weird stuff like that. And most people just don't even pay attention to this kind of stuff. But if you have OCD, the presence of an intrusive thought scares the OCD, it reacts, and that reaction makes you anxious, and then you do something to try to relieve the anxiety. So in my case, to try to relieve the anxiety, I would look to see if Fred was in the refrigerator, <laughs> which of course he wasn't. But as soon as I would close the door, my brain would say, but are we completely sure? Because what I did was I reinforced the cycle by doing a compulsion, by doing something to lower my anxiety. And then that tells my brain that this is a dangerous situation. So now my brain is convinced this is really a problem. And if it's really a problem, we need to be 100% sure. And so I got to do it again. And that's how we get stuck in this loop. So it's really the fact that OCD is reacting to intrusive thoughts. And I think that that's really important for people to understand because everybody, again, has intrusive thoughts. OCD is not having intrusive thoughts. OCD is the reaction um, to the intrusive thoughts. And that's the problem. I think that's a good explanation um, and why it can be so difficult. Uh, especially without treatment, if you're sort of just going it alone, or if you don't know that your thoughts don't necessarily need to be paid attention to, or considered to be the gospel, um, how hard it can be for people with OCD to uh, to manage. Exactly. So one of the one of the takeaways that I got from your book, since it's 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 like a memoir, um, it's a success story. It's it's but it's also like a journey through anxiety. Was that it took a long time for you to get the right diagnosis and treatment, and for a long time you suffered without like sharper or effective tools. Do you think now in 2019, or even when you were going through a lot of the suffering without the right tools, do you think that experience that you had is unique? Or do you think there's a lot of people sort of suffering without the right information, without the right treatment? And and now in 2019, almost 2020, do you think because of IOCDF and other things, the landscape has changed and that experience is less common? I wish that I could say that my experience was unique, but my experience is really common. So I am an OCD therapist now, and so I see the majority of the people I see have OCD, and I hear all sorts of stories that are somewhat similar to mine. You know, people having OCD for 10 years, 20 years, and they've seen therapists and not been diagnosed or been told to do things that don't work or they haven't even wanted to get treatment because they didn't even think it was a thing. So I think that while awareness of OCD now is, is better than it was, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, I, I'm guessing that there's still a lot of people going through what I went through. And I think the, the biggest problem we have now is that OCD is being used in common language as a synonym for neat and meticulous, which is so unfortunate because I think that when people who have OCD hear somebody say, oh, I'm so OCD, that that makes the person who actually has a disorder think, well, gosh, this is just something everybody has. 
I should just get over this. I should just deal with it because they're dealing with it. And the hypothesis that I have and that some other advocates who are trying to work on this issue have is that that's actually keeping people from seeking treatment. That people think this everyday use of OCD means that it's not really a thing. It's not really a serious debilitating disorder. And so they don't really need the treatment for it. They really just need to get over it. And so my guess, that's setting us back a little bit, which is really unfortunate because OCD is incredibly treatable. It doesn't even need long-term treatment. You know, people can overcome OCD in a period of, you know, months, um, although sometimes it can take years. And so it's really sad and unfortunate that there are so many of us still out there suffering with this, when if we could raise awareness of the diagnosis and its appropriate treatment and get lots of people trained in treating it, you know, we could get people better so quickly. Yeah. Even this week, I actually heard both my boss and my colleague use OCD in that way to mean neat and meticulous. And so what I have done to help people understand this and also to help people not use it incorrectly is when I'm meeting somebody and somebody asks me what I do, I say, well, I treat one of the most misunderstood and yet debilitating disorders in the world, and that's obsessive compulsive disorder. And so what I'm trying to do from the very beginning is change people's perspective on this. And I think that keeps people from making that mistake. when they're talking with me. So I don't even have to think about, gosh, can I, how can I compassionately correct what they've just said? But I'm also just trying and even introducing myself to raise awareness of the fact that it's misunderstood and what they know probably isn't entirely accurate and it's really debilitating. So that's one of the things that I've been working on just to try to help in small ways to get people to try to think before they use OCD as an adjective. I think that's really interesting because I, I, I sort of just assumed that the reason why people wanted others to use the phrase OCD correctly instead of in this sort of casual way is because it was offensive. That argument is, is maybe a little bit compelling depending on how empathetic you are to people being offended by certain like terms or trigger words. But, you know, I know my boss is a good person. I know my colleague is a good person. So I don't think too hard about it when they use the word OCD that way. But if it's actually keeping people from getting treatment because uh, people, when they hear it, actually believe that their mental sort of experience is the same as those that are sort of using it without sort of regard to the actual definition is keeping them sort of suffering and, 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 and not accessing treatment. Well, that's like a much more compelling idea. Agreed. And I think, you know, people with OCD do find it offensive um, on various levels, right? Depending on the day, depending on how your OCD might be behaving that day or what you've gone through. And I think, you know, for that reason, I'd love for people not to use it. But I think that, you know, if it is causing people not to seek treatment, that's an even more important reason for us to work on changing the language around this and really around all mental illness. Even the term mental illness, I think, is somewhat problematic, even though I've used that term frequently. I know we all do, because I think the term mental illness has the connotation that we can just think our way out of it, that it's something that we're choosing to have, um, that it's not really something that's out of our control, as opposed to a physical illness. And so I would love to see us change our language around that entirely and and talk about this as a brain disorder because that's what it is and that's what so many uh, 
quote unquote mental illnesses are. And there's a really good TED talk um, that I can give you the link for if you want to put it in the show notes, where um, a very well-known researcher and um, scholar in this field says, you know, calling this brain disorder instead of mental illness actually makes a lot more sense because they are brain disorders. Because for OCD, our brains are structurally and functionally different than the brains of people who don't have OCD. And so I think if we start thinking in terms of OCD and um, schizophrenia and uh, bipolar disorder and, and all of these disorders as brain disorders, that they're really no different than diabetes or asthma and cancer and that they have biological causes, um, I think that would help us all think about things like OCD and these other disorders as being the serious conditions that they are, not something that we can poke fun at. Yeah. And I also think it would help people, even myself, feel better that and not be so sort of self-judgmental about things that I do with my mind or my actions as a result of OCD, because it's sort of a, like literally it's a structural sort of change in my brain that, that makes it such that I have this experience or this disorder or this illness or this phenomena. Uh, Cause I feel like with mental stuff, there's so much people own it so completely that they judge themselves for it. Whereas if you, you know, you have a broken bone or you have asthma, you know, it's not something that you have to really be ashamed of because it's not something you could in any way feel responsible for. Whereas with the mental illness stuff, there's almost like the presumption that, if you have something wrong with you mentally, like you should just take care of it. Exactly. And I think that idea that we've done something to cause this, that it's our fault, that we should be ashamed of this, really just plays into what the disorder does to us because it's very shaming. It's very self-stigmatizing. It brings us down. It makes the disorder feel more powerful and us feel less powerful. And that makes it harder to work on getting over it and getting your life back. And just, it's no fun to feel shame and by something that you have. So I think if we could be able to change this language around this and recognize, just like you wouldn't blame yourself if you had asthma, we don't want you to blame yourself if you have OCD or depression or bipolar disorder or anything else, um, because it's not your fault. You can't help having this. And you want to go seek treatment for it, just like you would go seek treatment for asthma. Yeah, totally agree. So in the book, there's, I think you might call them anxiety scripts, but they're situations in which you're, you've come upon some situation where you could sort of do a ritual to make yourself feel better, but you actively don't. And then you recite something while, while trying to proceed through that healthfully that sort of declares your intention for trying to get better. Maybe I can just read one of those. Um, Cause I had, I had my own questions about what exactly anxiety scripts are. So this is page 201. Um, and I think you are rehearsing Fred for an event. And it, it says, quote, I may or may not be ostracized OCD. I may or may not end up clientless. And then all this time in graduate school may or may not have been a waste, but I want to do this. I want all my anxiety and all this uncertainty because I want to get better. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that kind of like practice of saying something like that, like out loud while you're trying to succeed with this stuff? I am uh, at my core, a primary me mental ritualizer, which means that 
most of my compulsions are in my head. I think that I developed this because part of my OCD was I could never allow anybody to know that there was anything, quote unquote, wrong with me. So I certainly couldn't get caught doing physical rituals because that would show people that there was clearly something off. Therefore, I did a lot of these rituals in my head and I became really skilled at a very young age. I started doing this probably in elementary school at analyzing and justifying and figure it out and rationalizing and replaying things, all those different types of things to try to bring my anxiety down, all happening inside my mind. When I started doing exposure therapy, where we want to expose ourselves to the situations um, that cause us to feel uncertain, because again, OCD is, um, it's not based, OCD is not about the content. It's not about whether I'm going to be ostracized or get HIV or offend somebody or run somebody over, whether my cat's stuck on the refrigerator. It's not about any of that. It's about not knowing whether any of that is true. And if you have just right OCD, it's about not knowing, gosh, how is this going to feel and, and how can I handle this? So it's all about uncertainty, not the content. And so for exposure, what we want to do is expose ourselves to situations that create that doubt and anxiety and uncertainty without doing rituals. And what I found was when I started exposing myself to those types of situations, I could still be up in my head doing all this mental stuff because by that point, it was a complete habit. It's what I had taught myself to do for decades. I determined I needed a competing response to stop that because I couldn't just figure out how to stop doing it. I've been doing it for so long, it was not like I could say, well, let me just stop thinking those things. I mean, we know thought stopping in and of itself doesn't really work. Um, and so I was just really struggling with that. So what I did was I came up with these exposure scripts where I could say out loud statements that would affirm the uncertainty of what my OCD was worried about over and over and over again to keep myself from dancing with it in my head. Because it really was like a mental ballet, and that's how I portray it in Fred. And I needed to stop myself from doing that. So saying those scripts out loud was a competing response that allowed me to get out of my head, focus on the uncertainty, and stop ritualizing. And anxiety scripts or exposure scripts can work really well, but they're really time-consuming. You know, I used to do them for, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour sometimes. Sometimes, like I talk about in, in Fred in that particular part that you read, they weren't even working that well because I was still up in my head doing it. But I would do these scripts to stop that process and it would work. It's not the strongest exposure strategy. I found later what the strongest exposure strategy was, but it was certainly an important skill and a building block to help me recognize what I was doing in my head and to learn to have the skills to start turning my attention away back to what I was doing so that I could get that skill to be able to not in interact with it in my head without doing the scripts. But that did take me a process of a couple of years to learn how to do that. So you, you've piqued my interest. Is that strong, strongest exposure that you learned about years later? Is that in Fred or is that some unpublished secret somewhere? <laughs> no, that's in Fred. That's what I call shoulders back. So the essence of shoulders back is really um, based on the work of Reed Wilson, because he was my therapist. I, he's been a mentor to me as I have become a therapist. And so I use a lot of his work. And one of the things that he said, 
at one of the IOCDF conferences I went to after I gave the keynote there was you need to treat the OCD content as if it were irrelevant. So you need to act as though what OCD is saying doesn't matter. And that acting as though is, is really the essence of good exposure. Because if you think about what we do when we're untreated and not doing exposure, when OCD says something, we act as though what OCD said was incredibly important. By opening and closing that refrigerator door looking for Fred, I'm acting as if the OCD is the most important thing in my life in that moment. And that's fueling the disorder. But if I act as though what OCD is saying is irrelevant, well, I hear it say, oh my gosh, Fred could be in the refrigerator. And I walk on by the refrigerator and I don't even look at it. I don't even stop. I don't even give it a second thought. And so, and that's so, so very powerful because if you don't pick up OCD's content in the first place, you don't have to work to put it down. And after I heard Reed say that, and I started trying this, um, I realized how powerful it was. And what I did was I paired it with standing powerfully in a power pose. So this is based on the work of Amy Cuddy, um, who did a lot of research about how our minds and bodies interact. And she's, she did some work that found out if you stood in a power pose, power pose for two minutes, it would raise your level of testosterone and lower your level of cortisol. And the net result is that you felt more powerful. So I started standing in these power poses, um, first using them with my scripts, and then just using them with what Reed had said, just being very powerful, putting my shoulders back and acting if everything was okay, to show my OCD that I was, I was more powerful than it was. And if I'm standing in this powerful position, well, that's not the position of somebody who's locked their cat in the refrigerator or run somebody over or has a dead, dread disease, right? That's the position of somebody who's confident and, and acting as if everything's fine. And so the shoulders back to me is if you hear OCD talking to you and you put your shoulders back and you go on with your day and you don't interact with it in any way, you don't do any mental compulsions, any physical compulsions. I mean, the OCD fizzles out pretty fast when you learn how to do that because you're not giving it anything. You're not even acknowledging that it exists. You're just hearing it and move on, which is what people who don't have OCD do when they have these kind of intrusive thoughts. And that is the most powerful exposure strategy I have found is, is being able to act as though the content is irrelevant. And so that's my shoulders back strategy. And that I have found is way more powerful than scripting. Scripting helped me get to being able to use shoulders back um, so I still think scripting is a good tool, especially if you're a primary mental ritualizer, um, but you want to move toward acting like what the OCD is saying doesn't matter. Yeah, that's, it's really compelling. I remember reading about the shoulders back stuff in the book, but I don't think I ever tried it or, or took it like very seriously or made it a practice within my own life. But it's, uh, it's definitely really, uh, it's a really great way, I guess, to ground yourself and do something physical and sort of get out of your head. And uh, it's also sort of just an appealing idea to see all these people maybe walking around like an OCD conference, like looking really strong and powerful. Exactly. Exactly. So I, that's what I eventually teach all my clients shoulders back. I will teach them scripting if they are mental ritualizers and can't get out of their head. I'll teach them scripting as a bridge tool. And I'm telling them as we're working on it, this is a bridge tool. And as soon as I can get people to doing shoulders back where they're hearing the 
intrusive thoughts, they're hearing OCD's reaction and they're just going on. I think that's when I see people make lots of progress because that's when they start seeing how powerful that technique can be. So it seems like for the shoulders back or maybe some of the scripts to work, I think it might be the case that you need to know like who is the OCD versus who is you or I don't know how many other cast of characters might be hopping around in there. Sometimes it seems like a lot, but that, <laughs> that needs to be known first, right? Before you can do this. Absolutely, Josh. I think that's a really good point is that separating yourself from your OCD is a critical foundational part of getting better. Because if you think that all this in your head is you, that's a lot harder to, to battle because you're battling with yourself. If you can externalize your OCD, personify it as something, give it a name, think of it as a creature or a person that's really annoying that you don't like, then what you're doing is you're saying, I hear, let's say that you called your OCD Bob. I hear Bob talking, but Bob is not me. And I'm going to react to Bob in a particular way based on what I'm doing in my therapy and my strategy right now. Um, And Bob isn't going to be governing my life anymore. And I think that that's an exceptionally important strategy is to recognize that you are not your OCD and that it is trying to help. It's very misguided, but it is trying to help. It is doing so in a way that's causing you a lot of distress and and you don't need to listen to it. You don't need to do what it's saying. Yep. Yep. So I've worked with therapists before and I, I think, I don't know if there's sort of one way of identifying who is who and who is not who or who is not you, but I guess maybe some tools might be identifying the OCD because it, it has a lot of uh, sort of needs, right? Like it's very needy. It demands action right away. There's a sense of urgency to that voice. It's like maybe less sober and like a little bit more or like very exasperated and, and uh, very rushed, um, wanting things to be solved immediately. Or, or like, what is the difference between the voice, the OCD voice, if, if there is one and like the sober sort of just human voice or the voice we want to pay attention to? The voice of OCD is the voice of doubt. It is the voice that starts out with what if. It's the catastrophic, black and white, rigid voice that only has one way of looking at things that is looking for control and comfort and certainty at all times. Great. That's awesome. There's a there's a quote on page 76 that I was... It, I, didn't, I don't know if you have a copy of the book in front of you. I can grab one. And I'm on page 76. Okay, so right before the chapter ends, there is this metaphor about uh, sunshine and shadows. I was wondering if maybe you could read that last paragraph and and maybe explain it a little bit because I was a little confused. It would be another two decades, sorry, it would be another two decades before I'd truly understand what happened to me during college and before I'd fully grasp a fundamental principle of life, that sunlight doesn't exist without shadows that shadows are always most distinct in the brightest sun, that an imperfect gauzy smattering of gray clouds is the only thing that makes shadows disappear. Would you like me to expound on that? I have some theories, but I'm holding back because I just want to get it from the horse's mouth. Sure. So as a person with OCD, and especially this time in my life, I was a pretty black and white thinker. So things were either awesome or awful all the time. And I had a really hard time being happy in any sustained sort of way because I had OCD. And by the time that this chapter was going on, I also had body dysmorphic disorder, although I didn't know 
that's what it was and wouldn't know for decades. But these both these disorders were coming in my mind and making me doubt things and making me think horrible things were going to happen and, and making me question how my life was going to go and the choices I was making. And so all I wanted to do was be a happy college student. I wanted there to be lots of sun. Um, I wanted there to be lots of happiness and fun and time with friends, as we all do, right? And what I mean in this metaphor is that life isn't all sunny, that if you have sunlight, you're going to have shadows because everything that the sunlight passes through, like a tree or a house or whatever, that creates a shadow. And I consider that a bad thing. Like, oh, it has to be all good, right? But life is not all good. Life has its ups and downs and its good and its bad and its sunlight and shadow. And that sometimes when things are going the best, that's when the shadows are going to seem the most distinct. It's the things that aren't going well are going to really stick out because they're in contrast to things that are really going well. And that it's the gray. So if we want the shadows to go away, what we end up is with is is gray because if it's really cloudy outside like it is right now in Atlanta there are no shadows on the ground it's really cloudy and it's gray and that's okay too and for me and this is based on something I heard John Grayson say at a IOCDF conference years ago and he's the author of the book Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder he said that the the goal of exposure therapy is to live in a world of uncertainty and be happy anyway and I think a world of uncertainty is a world of gray. It is not the world of black and white that OCD thinks things are. It's a world of gray and that we can be happy in the gray because that's actually the way life is. It doesn't have to be all sunny. Um, it doesn't have to be all shadows. That most of the time, it's sort of a mixture of the two. And and it's that imperfection, that gray, um, that is really what life is all about and being able to live in that and be happy. Well, that's what I would consider a success. Yeah. I think that's uh, my, my interpretation was slightly wrong. So I'm glad you cleared that up for me. And it reminds me a little bit. I read this article recently by this therapist named Stephen Phillipson. And he wrote a long article about choice mm-hmm. and in it, he talks about the difference between an OCD patient who's successful and one who's not. And the one who's successful is the one who's having a great day, but is willing to upset the apple cart and do the exposure anyways, even though it'll sort of get rid of sunlight, uh, some sunlight, or maybe cast more shadows than they were sort of experiencing um, in an otherwise really joyful day. So so maybe it's sort of similar, choosing to embrace the clouds. Maybe there's more sustainable or long lasting, either like peace or happiness there. Yes, I love that. I think being willing to embrace the clouds and to create some shadows of your own, um, I think that that's a, yeah, a great way to approach things. Uh, so here's a question that's been on my mind a lot, and I'm wondering what your take on it is. So we have this whole fight or flight or freeze thing, you know, like deer in the headlights or run away. And it's great because when we were walking around Africa, <laughs> there were tigers and, you know, we needed it. Now we you know, drive our cars to the supermarket. It's a little different. So, so here's my question. Is anxiety always misplaced if it's not helping us avoid death or bodily injury? Or are there circumstances short of those really extreme events where 
the anxiety is is serving us and it's not just a mistake if you could call it that of the brain sure that's a great question and i think yes i think anxiety serves purposes that can be really helpful outside of situations where we're really in danger and in fact the technical definition difference between fear and anxiety is that Fear is what we feel when something's really threatening us, and anxiety is really everything else. And if we think of those life-threatening situations, and that's where the fight, flight, or freeze response is, is happening, then that's an incredible surge of adrenaline and cortisol. We don't, we're not even thinking in those moments. We're just moving and acting to get away from danger, and that's ideally how it's supposed to work. And then after the situation is over, you can almost feel the chemicals draining away and they can leave you feeling sort of shaky. Like if you've ever almost been in a car accident or been in one and you can get out of it and you're, you're really shaky, that's all those chemicals, you know, sitting there sort of working their way out and dissipating, right? But when there's nothing really there and we're creating the situation in our brain and it's creating some anxiety... You know, we have probably a lower level of those chemicals running through, but they're still pretty powerful and can make us feel on edge and shaky and all of that. But there are situations when that anxiety can actually be helpful. And for instance, I can think of performance type situations. So before a test, if you have a little bit of anxiety, it's probably going to make you be a little bit more cognizant of the questions you're answering, a little more focused on what you're doing. Um, if you're about to do some sort of sports event, having a little bit of that anxiety from that adrenaline is probably going to help you be able to focus your muscles and your body and do what you need to do. So I think there are situations where some of that can be helpful. And we wouldn't want to have absolutely no anxiety because then we might sort of go in and stumble our way through it or it might not go as well. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right. I can live with that. That's, that's when we want to keep it around. And there are probably other situations, too, that I'm just not thinking of. Again, I'm, I, I think it's, it's really thinking of it in a gray way and that anxiety isn't good or bad. It is our body trying to help us to be prepared to do things. And, and a great TED Talk for people to watch who want to learn more about this is How to Make Stress Your Friend by Dr. Kelly McGonigal. And in it, she talks about that it is our view of stress that actually changes how the stress manifests in the body. So she talks in this TED Talk about that it isn't stress that kills us. It's people's beliefs about stress that kill them. So stress in and of itself isn't bad. But if we view stress as bad, then our body actually has it have some negative effects. But if we view it as positive, if we view it as something that's helping us, that actually changes the way our cardiovascular system responds. That changes how our body is responding to the situation so that it's positive. And so this mindset shift is incredibly important. And watching that TED Talk will give you some tips of how to change your mindset around anxiety and stress so you can make it work for you instead of against you. That sounds like a great thing to watch. You know, in the sort of mental health community, anxiety, OCD, like we sort of started talking about at the beginning, there's been progress made, there's more awareness, but sadly, still lots of people don't get treatment, don't know it's available, don't know it works, don't know maybe if they even have OCD. What do you think 
and this is sort of a personal question for me is short of becoming a therapist, what, what do you think advocates or, or people who are interested in mental health can do with their time or their effort or their money or their passion? What can they do that sort of could make a big impact or, or what needs need immediate addressing? There are lots of different ways that people interested in advocacy can make a difference. And those ways don't have to be huge. For instance, uh, Jeff Bell, I know you talked about his book, When in Doubt, Make Belief, on a previous episode. He um, has a, a nonprofit called the Adversity to Advocacy Alliance. And one of the things that the ATA Alliance has created is Project Hope Exchange, where people can leave 30-second messages of hope for other people to listen to that are suffering from the same issues that they are. And that can be a great way. If you go to Project Hope Exchange, I believe it's .com. Um, if you go to Project Hope Exchange, you can leave a message for somebody. That's, that's a really easy thing to do. You can get on an online support group and you could provide hope and encouragement to other people who are struggling. You can decide to share your story with a couple of friends or other people and from people that I've worked with as clients and other friends, what typically happens when you share something with somebody else that you're going through is that person typically will share something else back with you that they've been going through that you wouldn't have known about. And so I think opening up that vulnerability and being real with somebody that you trust creates a bond and a connection that helps you both feel understood. And I think that's a kind of advocacy. People who are interested in educating others about OCD can certainly just use their own experience to talk about OCD in conversations with people and work environment to help people understand what OCD is. Then there are ways that you can do it on a more scalable level where you're writing blogs. And some people will write blogs, but not identify themselves. So they're really anonymous blogs. And that's a good way to get your toe in if you're not wanting to identify yourself at this point as somebody who has OCD. You can write blogs and share your experience. And that can be very helpful for other people to read. I know people have started Facebook groups that people can share information and, and share advocacy tips and things like that. Then there's, you know, what you're doing, Josh, which is great. We're just starting a podcast where you talk about books <laughs> that, that address uh, mental health issues. Then there are things like presenting at the, the national conferences or regional conferences. There are lots of international OCD foundation affiliates all over the country now. And you can offer to present at one of those. You can submit to present at the national conference, which will just be opening up uh, next month, January 2020. So there are all sorts of different ways to do advocacy, and every single one of them is important. And I think as people with OCD, we can look at this again in a very all or nothing way and say, oh my gosh, well, unless I'm willing to go present on a national stage, this isn't going to matter. And that's not true. Just being honest with a friend could make a huge difference for that friend. And so thinking about ways big and small that you can contribute, I think is really important and giving yourself a lot of credit and, and celebrating your success for doing advocacy on any level is really important because those of us with OCD are horrible about beating up on ourselves and not giving ourselves credit for the success that we do have. And so 
helping yourself realize, gosh, I did some advocacy and that, that felt really good. And that was really, I'm really proud of myself for having done that. Thanks. That was really comprehensive. Uh, so there's lots of, lots of ways to get involved and contribute. Have you, in your experience, ever seen any sort of negative uh, outcomes? So like, let's say, you know, you, you don't decide to completely take the plunge and become like a therapist and sort of sort of completely identify yourself as being a part of this world, but you maintain your sort of career. I'm a software engineer and you just sort of show up at work one day and you get up on your desk and you just shout, you know, I have OCD, I have anxiety, like just put all your cards out on the table. Do you think the society, the business world, are people ready to hear those things from their colleagues and their friends? Um, or, or is that not the wisest way to sort of make yourself so incredibly vulnerable? I think it's very situational. I did a whole podcast on this very topic with Kimberly Quinlan with Your Anxiety Toolkit probably about six to 12 months ago, where we talked about how to determine what level of disclosure works for you if you want to disclose. And I think if you're in a company that's really into, into people's health and wellness and, and rewards people for being honest and vulnerable, then yeah, that could be great. If you're in a company that's not like that, that might not be so great. <laughs> so I think looking at it from a situational perspective is important. Unfortunately, OCD is very misunderstood. And so if you tell people you have OCD, they may not completely understand what you're talking about. I know some people have gone about telling large number of people through Facebook, and they actually would do large posts where they'd write about their specific experience to help people understand what they mean by I have OCD, so that people would have some context around that. But there are still going to you know, be people out there who might not understand, who might not be empathic, and that's okay. That, that's the case, I think, for disclosing anything in, in any situation. And that's why it, thinking about it and what's right for you and making a decision based on what your goals are, why you're sharing, how you want to share it, and you know, are you prepared for any negative comments that you might get, I think is really important. And again, that episode, um, Kimberly and I talk about that in detail. Cool. I'll include that in the show notes also. Thank you. That's, that'll be really good listening because that's a question I've had on my mind uh, for a while. Uh, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you two more questions, um, or maybe three. And you can answer any subset of this. Sounds good. <laughs> um, okay. So one question is, do you consider yourself cured, whatever that means? The second question is, what should we read next? for this podcast. And then the third question is, uh, it says that on your email signature, you're working on a novel. Do you want to tell us about that? So uh, take any or none or some of those and, and, and see what you have sure, to say. Sure, I'll, I'll answer all three. So do I consider myself cured? Definitely not. This is something that I'm very passionate about. And Jeff Bell, who I've done a lot of advocacy work, is also very passionate about this. He even says in the foreword to Fred, that you know we don't consider ourselves cured we consider ourselves works in progress that we aren't recovered we're recovering and i think that's really important because ocd right now isn't curable and the reason it isn't curable is because everybody has intrusive thoughts we can't get rid of those and ocd is every now and then going to react to those intrusive thoughts and that's okay you know it's ocd it does that so are you going to be symptom-free? No. 
And if you're having a really bad day, or you haven't gotten any sleep, but hungry, you know, could OCD do something that makes you spiral down for a while, even if you're in recovery? Absolutely. That's completely happened to me. And that's okay. I think when we say that OCD can be cured, we are setting up an expectation that the majority of people aren't going to be able to achieve. Certainly, I can't achieve it. There may be people out there who feel they are cured, and I think that's fabulous. But I think as an expectation, I want to. I, I think it's better to say I'm in recovery. I'm working on recovery. I'm a work in progress because that's true for everybody, regardless of what you're what you're experiencing and what you're suffering with. But the fact that it can't be cured doesn't mean that we're all going to be living in misery for the rest of our lives. Because all it means is that we still have intrusive thoughts, and every now and then the OCD is going to react to one of them. And that's all right. I would still consider myself to live a great, joyful life, even though I have OCD and, and BDD, and even though sometimes I still struggle with depression. You know, that's, that's okay. I use the skills I have. And if I have a relapse, it doesn't last as long as they used to because I know what to do. So I think thinking about it in recovery, that we can't be cured is okay because we can still live awesome, joyful lives. That's a great message of hope and, and a really good definition. I wasn't sure what you were going to say, but uh, I really, I really like that answer. Yeah. Thank you. And then what book should you do next? This is really hard because there are so many good books out there, but I would say Stopping the Noise in Your Head. So that's Reed Wilson's uh, latest book, and it's really like his seminal work, all that he's done over his whole career is in that book. And it really talks about how to have a different relationship with anxiety. And this is something that's so important that we haven't covered yet on this podcast, but bringing a, an awareness to your anxiety that is welcoming, that is like a game, like bring it on, I can handle this, completely changes the dynamics of power between you and your OCD. Because all of us with OCD, we are doing compulsions for the simple reasons that we are trying to get rid of anxiety. We are not doing the compulsions to prove that your cat's not in the refrigerator, that you didn't run somebody over, and you don't have some dread disease. That's what OCD tells you, but that's content. We are doing it specifically to get rid of anxiety. If you stop wanting to get rid of anxiety, well, you just stripped away about 50% of OCD's power. And Reed's book talks all about that. And what I also love about this is Reed has that book, then he has some free videos on his website that talk about, it's about 30 minutes worth of videos that talk about the different aspects in the book um, as little videos where he actually has a person play anxiety. So he has a person with anxiety and then he, he has her anxiety personified as this character and they interact. So you can see what he's talking about by watching these videos and help you and helps you understand how to put it into action in your own life. He also has an online course that's five hours that you could take that further reinforces the principles because Reed is trying to help people have self-help materials that work and on various levels. So I think that would be a great book to do because there's so much there. Uh, there's so much that you can learn from. And I think the principles that he teaches are incredibly important. They've been a huge part of my recovery foundation and I think would be great for anybody suffering from any kind of anxiety. 
Awesome. That's a great endorsement. Um, and I really like that idea, the whole bring it on thing. Um, I think, yeah, it spins the tables on the OCD. And when you tell people <laughs> that you're going to ask your brain for more, they, I think their eyes really light up and they think, well, I could do that. So I, I think that sort of thread is a, is probably a really powerful It's one. a really powerful one. And people's li- eyes do light up. Sometimes they light up and they look at me like, what did you just say? <laughs> Because it sounds like such a weird idea, but then people are like, oh, wow, yeah, you're right. If pushing anxiety away is making it worse, then if I pull it to me, that could make it better. And it intuitively makes sense. It's just not something that we think of naturally because it's so paradoxical, but so very powerful. We're going to do it. We're killing anxiety. I mean, it's so great to live in this generation in 2019 when people just know so much about it. Like 100 years ago, really, what what would we be saying? Like, I feel like there'd be, there'd be less research and sort of less tools like Yes. Agree. Okay. And last question. Uh, tell me about this, this novel. So my new book is called a day to die and it is a mystery novel about the true price of secrets that we keep from ourselves. And I've always wanted to write a mystery novel. In fact, I wrote Fred in the style of a suspense novel because that's what I like to read. And I decided this time I'm going to try my hand at writing just a real novel. So this is about a a jockey, a female jockey, who's involved in an accident on the racetrack and ends up coming back to Atlanta and getting involved with solving the murder of an equine artist. And so I'm in the research phase right now. I spent a week in Kentucky talking to jockeys and trainers and exercise writers and learning about the horse racing industry. I'm spending time um, learning about the world of homicide detectives and all of that by meeting with people in my local homicide unit and understanding what they're doing. My next phase of research is understanding the art world. And there will be a character within the book who has OCD uh, because I want to use this book as a way to help people understand what OCD really is and how it really presents and how people really manage it. So that's the tie-in to what I uh, do on a day-to-day basis. But it's a lot of fun. Um, it's going to take me a year, a year and a half to write, so it won't be out for a while. But I'm really enjoying the process. To me, it's about learning to enjoy what I'm doing as I'm going along, because that's something my OCD took away from me for so many decades. And it's really fun for me to just be in the process and to try to figure all this out and to not know when it's going to be finished and to not know how it's going to turn out and to not know if it's even going to be any good and be okay with all that <laughs> because it is an exposure. It is a big life exposure for me on, on so many levels and it's, and it's fun. And so it's part of what I do. Exposure is a lifestyle because I really think that's the way we want to live. If I go back to one of my favorite quotes, which is another TED Talk, um, Susan David, The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage, she said that discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. And that's how I try to live my life each day. And writing this book actually makes me really uncomfortable on a lot of levels, just because there's a ton of uncertainty. I've never done this before. You know, that's the biggest one. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know anything about the horse racing industry other than what I've learned or the art world or homicide or any of this. I'm going to have to figure it all out. And in figuring it all out and not knowing, it's really uncomfortable, but it's also super fun. I think that's, it's awesome. And it's also just sort of empowering to hear from someone who once had such debilitating OCD, but still obviously excelled in the business world and dotted all her I's and crossed all her T's. 
uh, to now be empowered to just sort of accomplish these sort of very meaningful personal goals of writing novels and interviewing jockeys. Like it's, you know, there's, there's more to life than OCD stuff. There's also like writing cool books. So um, I think that's really awesome. Yeah, thank you. I'm enjoying it greatly. Cool. Well, um, is there anything else that you think I haven't asked that uh, might serve whomever decides to listen to this podcast? Hopefully many people, but admittedly, it's it's a young podcast, uh, so perhaps not many in the beginning. Uh, anything I haven't asked you? I think the, the only other thing I would say for anybody listening to this who has anxiety or OCD is that don't ever give up. You know, OCD and anxiety, they're, they're aggressive disorders. They're aggressive for a reason. They think they're helping. They really do think that they're keeping you alive, that they're doing something meaningful for you. They're just really, really misguided. And their aggressive nature can make life really awful. And it can make it hard to get better because you dig in on therapy and OCD digs in on its stuff and it's like a war. But don't ever give up. Because we have really good evidence-based treatment for both OCD and for our anxiety disorders. It's all based on exposure therapy. It works exceptionally well to retrain your brain to stop seeing these uncertain things as being dangerous things and just keep plugging away. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. If we look at my recovery, my recovery took years and I still work on it. You know, I, I learned about ERP in 2010 and I still consider myself working on it even now as 2019. So, you know, your main course of ERP therapy might take a couple months, it might take a couple years, but you might work on this for years, decade or longer, just figuring out how to live life the best way for you. And that's okay. Never give up, celebrate along the way. The little pieces of progress matter and you can do it. Well, Shala, uh, as inspirational as your book was that last answer. So thank you so much for that note of optimism. I think that that really goes a long way. And uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I was really excited when you agreed to do it. And uh, you're a great speaker and a great writer. So I didn't really have to do much. So, so Well, thank thanks you. so much for having me on the podcast, Josh. And I just wish you all the best with it. It sounds like a great podcast. I'm a big, fav uh, big fan of books and book clubs. So I think what you're doing is wonderful. And I hope you have lots of success.